Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, November the 2nd, 2022. Seems as if 2022 has been a particularly discordant year in world politics and browsing the headlines this morning there's there remains a tremendous amount of discord much of it of course associated with the russian ukraine war according to the new york both the new york times and the financial times the russians have agreed to rejoin the ukrainian grain export deal one wonders how long that will last but the discord is endemic uh, reports in the New York Times, very chilling reports that the Russian military leaders apparently discussed the use of nuclear weapons. I'm not sure where they were going to fire them. Um, and of course, this is global discord, not just Ukraine and Russia. It extends to North Korea. According to the FT this morning, the United States is accusing the North Koreans of covertly supplying the Russia's war in Ukraine. I'm not sure how much the Russia, the North Koreans can help the Russians. It might reflect Russia's own situation. Uh, we've done many shows on China and its role in our discordant world. Piece in the FT this morning about suggesting that global bankers are very pro-China, whatever that means. Um, lots of dispute about the nature of the Chinese regime. The Wall Street Journal today has a feature on China's number two, who is both a business pragmatist and a party loyalist. They ask which will prevail. One wonders what his attitude is towards um, the world's uh, discord. Meanwhile, in Africa, uh, dirty cash continues to rule. Peace in the FT today about how one uh, company flew bribe cash across Africa in global, in, in private jets. Some things never seem to change, whether it's jets or cars or boats. Um, we're talking about global discord today uh, with, appropriately enough, the author of a new book called Global Discord, Values and Power in a Fractured World Order, with my guest, Paul Tucker. Um, very distinguished man, former deputy head of the uh, Bank of England, uh, knighted, a man uh, who historically has ruled our world. Paul, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. It's You're laughing, but you are, for better or worse, Paul, a part of that elite. Um, is that elite still relevant, the global elite? Well... International policy is still relevant. Um, so to that extent, the people that go to international meetings are still relevant. I think that the Davos elite needs to reconnect with the, the world in ways that it kind of stopped doing about 25 years ago. And actually, there was no need to go to Davos, in my view, when one was a um, policymaker. Um, but it's inevitable that in a reasonably joined up world, the people that make decisions in different fields, uh, right up to the top of government, that they will meet in various places. Yeah, we, we've done shows on Davos, and indeed there's a new book out, very critical of the Davos elite called Davos Man. Your new book, Global Discord, Values and Power in a Fractured World Order. How much more fractured 
Paul, is the world order in 2022 than it was in 2012 or 2002 or 1972 or 82 or 92? A lot more than a decade ago or 20 years ago. 1972 is an interesting date that I'll come back to in a second. What we have started to see over the past three or four years, partly prompted by COVID, partly prompted by the war in Eastern Europe, but not only that, is a disengagement from the economies of the West, led by the United States, and the economy of of the People's Republic of, of China. But this disengagement will will span many, many spheres and many and many geographies. And while there will be disengagement in parts of the economy, there will be a, a kind of more straightforward contest in ways away from economic policy. So I'm assuming you're not a great fan of Biden's uh, position on chips and his what some people at least call an economic war against China. What, what is your take? And is that the core of today's global discord, the brewing economic war between China and the United States? I actually think he's done probably the right thing, and that the United States has been slow to, to do so. It's, I, I think of the contest between China and the West as one that will probably go on for a long century in the way that the contest between France and Britain did in the long 18th century. And it's a, it's a contest where it needn't um, reach a decisive conflict, but where each side, um, the West and we have to expect China as well, to avoid making ourselves, them to us, unnecessarily vulnerable. And what President Biden's team have done with the semiconductor thing is said, we are not gonna be reliant or exposed to reliance on crucial um, things which we don't control directly in the United States. I think this is a, it's a world where all too easily it would lead to a kind of globalized autarky. Everybody retreats to their shell. I don't think that will happen. I think it will be a world in which people identify their friends and allies and and are careful to maintain trade and investment in really crucial things, security dependent things with those friends and allies. And in parallel, both sides will do that. And in parallel, there will be some kind of non-aligned movement will reemerge of the kind that we saw in the 1950s and 1960s. Maybe that will be led by India again. It's too early to, to say. But I think this will be a lot more complicated than the old Cold War, because in the old Cold War, the Soviet Union and the West were content to completely decouple and basically have live in parallel worlds connected with a narrow tube for oil and dollars going in the other direction and a contest in the, in the field of interballistic missiles and, and elsewhere. I think it will be a lot more complicated than that. It sounds to me, Paul, I mean, there's so many, uh, there's so much hysteria about the state of the world. It sounds to me, at least in the way you're describing things, as if it's business as usual. What can we learn from history? You talked about the long 18th century, the conflict between uh, Britain and France, which, of course, eventually, 
It wasn't a very happy, it wasn't a very happy marriage, but it produced a child, the United States, and that ended that world of autarky. I assume that the US and China can't have a child, can they? I don't think anything like the same way, or not for many, many um, decades. What, what's interesting about the contest between Britain and France in, in the 18th century isn't just that it was a contest between two superpowers, um, each of whom wanted to be the most important superpower. It was, from Britain's point of view at least, at the beginning of the 18th century and then again at the end of the 18th century, it was essentially a concern about France's style of government, that it was absolutist. At the beginning of the 18th century, it was absolutist monarchy. At the end of the 18th century, it was absolutist revolutionary government. Um, Burke famously said that it wasn't so much um, powers, France's power that bothered him, but that it was the wrong kind of power. And I, I think this is instructive. I think that the, the, the world is big enough for two great superpowers, economic superpowers, military superpowers, to coexist alongside each other. But it's much, much harder to do so when they have fundamentally opposed um, views of how countries should be governed, of how international cooperation should, should work. You mentioned um, Davos. In 2017, I think it was the Davos um, crowd was, was warmly applauding um, leader Xi um, for, for an internationalist sounding speech. I wonder how many people in the Davos audience that day um, knew about document number nine released only a few years earlier, which included the Communist Party's famous seven no's, no against liberalism, no against um, Western rights, no against um, an unconstrained market economy, no against um, a free press. This was, this was a different, this was an alternative um, creed. And it is much more difficult, I would say, for the West to feel comfortable with a great power whose creed almost opposes our deepest values than it would be to live alongside um, a new rising power um, whose views aren't identical to ours, but don't challenge our deepest values in some um, basic way. So I think this is gonna be quite a contest and one that will go through many um, forms. There will be periods where cooperation can occur and there'll be periods when the two um, great superpowers are on the brink of, of conflict. And that's exactly how Britain and France lived out the 18th century. When I was at graduate school many years ago, um, uh, Paul uh, at UC Berkeley, uh, the two fathers of international relations theory were teaching there. Ken Waltz, who was the realist, um, and uh, a man called Haas, who was somewhat of a psychopath, who was the founder of, or one of the founders of a more idealist um, theory of international relations. Your book is a return to this endless, timeless, uh, shall we call it, discord between realism and idealism. Um, whoops. Uh, apologize. Seem to have an emergency here. Um, that may have been harsh from the grave. Um, <laughs> your book 
is a return to this perennial conflict between idealists and uh, realists when it comes to the international system. And uh, your, your reference to the 18th century is important. In a way, you pit Hobbes, the great father of realist international relations, and Kant against Grotius and Hume, and then later Bernard Williams. What in your mind are these two anchors of thinking about the world in, in terms of international relations? And, and why is the latter school, in your mind, of Grotius and Hume and Williams more, quote unquote, realistic for the 21st century than the one that Hobbes and Kant imagined? I, this is the question of the center of the book in a way, or it's certainly the book's high road. There's a kind of lower road that's more practical. Um, a caricature of the Hobbes Only high roads on my show, Paul, no low <laughs> roads. <laughs> Very let's, good too. Let's, let's go Hobbes and. Very good too. So the, the, the a caricature of the Hobbesian would be that it's all about power. Um, countries are, rising countries are destined to clash with established powers. Um, everything is determined by their structure. Um, there is there is no way of cooperating in the absence of a world um, sovereign. And, and, and those people tend to be interested in security issues and not interested in international cooperation on the economy at all. The, the Kantians, meanwhile, think that reason with a capital R can overcome those problems, um, given a shared human nature and that we can reason our way to a world of global of justice and and it's interesting that one doesn't always find hobbes and kant or hobbesians and kantians in the same camp no well they're, they're the same camp in that they're against they're against the, the, the figure that i um draw on which is david hume i mean the problem with 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 the hobbesians and and the kantians is that for the hobbesians crudely it's all about power and for the Kantians, it's all about values. And your viewers will be thinking, well, that can't be true. Both both surely matter, as do interests and interdependence. Yeah, and the subtitle and, of your book is Values and Power. So you're not in exactly. either camp. And Hume, and Hume can guide us to, to, to that. Because Hume is a, a realist for whom interests and self-interest matters. Um, but where sometimes what holds us together uh, norms, the norm of promise um, making and promise keeping. And it's not that we always keep our promises. It's that breaking a promise raises the stakes that if you and I were going to try to cooperate on something, but we cheat, well, then say we try to make a promise um, to cooperate. And the Hobbesian will say, well, that gets us nowhere. Um, it, it, it's just another form of words for the same thing. And, and the Humeans, David Hume himself would say, no, what? No, no. By making a formal promise, we've now widened the circle of people that are bothered when Tucker breaks his promise to Keith. These other people, they didn't care at all about what it was we were trying to cooperate on. What they cared about was that I made a formal promise in public to you and then broke it. Well, if I go around doing that, um, how can they rely on me? And it's not, it's more than just a repeated game. This is a norm that people and even countries um, internalize. So when, and it has real implications, when a few years ago, the United States was playing fast and loose with, with international treaties and international law, and I mean ignoring treaties that they'd signed up to, 
um, there were there were costs to this, and the cost amounts to my goodness, is that a reliable partner? Is that a reliable um, leader? And basically, I think that Hobbesians, and in a different way, um, Kantians can't help us through this thicket. Hume's just a much more sophisticated. I mean, he combines sophistication with feet on the ground, and it is odd to me, um, but for others to say that it is odd to me that Hume hasn't been drawn on more in international relations scholarship. And in one respect, my book is saying, well, hold on, can we go back to Hume and find in him things other than just... So, um, so what, let, let, let's be very specific. You brought out this central conflict of the 21st century between China and, uh, and the United States. We know what the Hobbesians would say. It's a zero-sum game. You're winners and losers, and you want to be a winner. The Kantians would look at it in a more idealistic, I guess, global context. What would a Humean say? What, what wisdom does David Hume bring to this problem of China-America in the 21st century? So I, so I think one way of, of getting this across is to say, so for, uh, for, for many realists, including some of today's famous realists, John Mears. Mia Scheimer et al., who, exactly. who, who, who are in some ways apologists for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. They, they would say, well, there's a rising power and there's an inevitability of, of tension and conflict, irrespective of China's form of government, irrespective of the form of government in the United States and, and Europe. The purposes don't come into it, that it's just a structural problem. The world can't tolerate two superpowers. Um, and the Humean wants to say, no, hold on, the world could, could tolerate um, different great powers, depending on whether they feel each other is a threat to, to, the, to the other. And actually, some realists have, have grappled with that. Steve Walter at, at Harvard wanted to... Um, yeah, yeah Walt was a, a student, actually, of Walt's. Yes, he was. He was. But interestingly, took a really big step away from that um, stuff. I'm not sure that Steve would... He was, uh, he, I think he was at Berkeley for, for grad school. Yeah. When he when he wanted to when by framing it in terms of threats, what the Humean adds, well, whether whether another great state is a threat depends partly on the norms that they live by. I mean, one crude way of putting it is that if one thinks about Xinjiang and various other things, the clampdown on 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 free speech, the lack of the rule of law, one could say, well, if they treat their own people like that. Um, how would they treat us if they could? What and about, it let's look historically. Sorry, it doesn't, from, it doesn't follow from that that there is an inevitability to a clash, but that we have to make a judgment. That's that's the thing that Williams brings to one of the yeah. And I, and I was going to Williams. ask you, Ber I, I wouldn't have expected Bernard Williams to pop up. He's a great literary twentieth century. British literary theorist, how does he help us in this? No, you're thinking, you're thinking of Raymond Williams, not Bernard Williams. So Bernard, oh, Williams, Bernard Williams was a moral a, philosopher, right? Very great moral philosopher, who in his last years, he passed away in the early zeros, started writing about political theory. And he emphasized, his focus was on the state rather than relations between states. But his, one of his key points, perhaps the center, um, of his political theory was that we face a Hobbesian question. 
which is which he calls the first political question. What provides the conditions for order, safety, protection, trust, some conditions for cooperation? And Williams says, well, the answer to that question can't become part of the problem, that the people that are being governed have to, in some sense, um, accept the form of government, the state that they are under. They, they present the state with a legitimation demand. And the, and the norms and principles associated with our political values, they constrain what the state can do. Or as I would put it, if we're faced with an outrageous state, then people will want to resist. And a sensible state will compromise in, in some way. And Williams and Hume, I think, lead us to the same place as a, for um, the modern So world. who would be your, uh, so, so I get who your philosophers are, Hume and Williams and Grotius as well. Who, who are your ideal statesmen? I mean, who, who is the model that we need to emulate historically? Did, did the founding fathers in the United States, they weren't thinking globally, of course, although it was a new world. Um, did the Federalists get it? Madison, for example? I think Madison probably came closer than... than I'm assuming you're no great fan of Alexander Hamilton, who is a hardcore Hobbesian. Well, and, and, and a mercantilist as, uh, as well. But he also wasn't, didn't think he was designing a state um, that was already a major power. I think what you want, you certainly don't need political leaders that know all the stuff that we're talking about and have read those authors. I think you want people that are principled um, and pragmatic in the best way. They, they, they will weigh different factors. They will so be- Burkean in a way. I mean, Burke was both a theorist and a, a, a political figure. What about great figures in British history? You're a, a Lord of the Realm or a Sir? Castlereagh. Castlereagh's approach to the concert of Europe as it became after the Napoleonic Wars had ended and France was defeated. And this, 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 this business of bringing France back into the, into the fold, not vanquishing the enemy, but making them part of a, a, a system where you made minimal demands on the ways of life of the other great powers. You didn't seek to interfere with them as long as they were, didn't pose a threat to, to you and you found your way um, towards solutions. So Castle Ray over in the 19th century, Metternich, who was more paranoid, even if he was running a much more fragile state. Metternich not, because Metternich, Metternich incredibly, in some senses, great man though he was. Um, Metternich wanted to turn the concert of Europe into a machine to um, underpin absolute monarchy in various ways. And Castlereagh, Castlereagh rejected that. He had much. Castlereagh represented a, uh, an incipient democracy and Metternich otherwise. So you, you, you're, you're imprisoned as a statesman by the system you're representing. Yes, well, you, um, Castlereagh, I don't think, was Castlereagh and some of his successors were not interested in proselytizing what today we would call the democratic way of life. They wanted to ensure some kind of global European, for them, European order. And then with some confidence, I suspect, that that would eventually lead to some convergence in political system. But they didn't want to press it. So the contrast to this 
the um, would be no, don't try. If you think about the United States, the neoconservatives in the United States don't try to convert everybody to democracy at the end of of, of a tank or the barrel of a of a gun. So yeah, so let's get to 20th century, particularly American global statesmen. We're doing a show on George Kennan in a month or two. There's a major new biography about on about him. I assume you're more a fan of, of Kennan than, than Kissinger? I mean, who, who would be an American I'm statesman I'm who you think gets it? I'm ambivalent about Kennan. Uh, in his old age, he said morality is completely um, irrelevant to, to foreign policy and international relations, which is plainly rubbish. I mean, I don't believe for a second that Kennan would have believed that if the United States could exterminate its enemies and get away with it, um, without reprisals of any kind, that he would have thought that was a decent thing to do. There's an earlier canon who says, actually, we must we must try to live by our own values internally, um, without trying to impose them on the rest of the of the world. And that's that's a better. Um, and canon. I assume you're no great fan of, of Kissinger. Who would be the most Humean twentieth century American? Oh, that's a Secretary of State or diplomat? Who who on, epitomizes on, your on, values? On Kissinger, by the way, Kissinger the scholar, um, particularly Kissinger the younger scholar, I've got a, a good deal of time for. In his in his famous book about the concert of Europe, he, the very core of it is what is the legitimacy principle that holds these different states together in some kind of equilibrium? I think that's exactly. Um, right. K Kissinger once in office. Um, no, no, I'm not going to travel with all of that because there are unnecessary um, um, interventions in other states, of course, very brutal ones. Very interesting question. Um, Truman's approach to the reconstruction after um, the Second World War, um, I mean, admittedly pushed into it partly by the rise of the Soviet Union, um, but a much more a much more realistic and at the same time internationalist and at the same time principled stance than than um, the Roosevelt administration in some ways. Sec um, Treasury Secretary Morgenthau wanted. Yeah, to we. I was going to bring up Morgenthau. We did a show with Andrew May. I'm not sure he has a, a thousand-page book out on the Morgenthau's and. He, he deals with that Morgenthau in great detail. We had an interesting conversation. You know, the Morgenthau, the Morgenthau Treasury Secretary, not the international relations theorist, the Treasury Secretary wanting to turn Germany into a farm. I mean, this was a stupid policy. I mean, this, it's, and I, you know, I was a policymaker. And so when I say it's stupid, I mean, that's what I really think. I mean, it's, it's a, it was a policy which no reasonable person could have thought could ever be workable and i think it's easy to say that in 2022 but in 1945 as the troops rolled into the concentration camps it's hard to keep emotion out of politics however hard you well, but, but except looking back to what happened after the first world war when people tried a punitive approach right. so wilsonian so you're no great fan of, of woodrow wilson i would assume i no, i'm not i'm not i, th I so think the americans have for the most part uh uh, Paul, and, and this is not maybe an unusual argument in the, in, in the United Kingdom, the Americans have screwed the world up mostly when they've been running it. They didn't learn from the Brits. They didn't learn from Castlereagh. Is that fair? 
I think they didn't learn from Castlereagh enough. And there's a very interesting story about Vietnam um, told in, in Barbara Tuchman's book, where the Americans arrives, arrive there and the leading French general keeps on trying to get an appointment to describe what he's got wrong, where he thinks the Americans could learn from the French, and he can't get an appointment. And, and you know, having done many jobs in um, junior and, I suppose, very senior in, in, in public sector, it's always a good idea to talk to your predecessors because they may have great wisdom to impart to you. But look, yeah, I think Truman was a Morgan She, she was I, from that I, family. And I think Eisenhower um, probably somewhat um, as well. I think if you jump to the 1990s, a degree of overexcitement, um, perhaps in Bush one, and perhaps in Clinton, the Clinton administration. And when I say that, I thought this you have to be careful when you talk about overexcitement in the Clinton administration. Um, but if, if they were saying policy terms, I think it was partly because they they weren't attentive enough to Tiananmen Square. In many respects, the greatest event of 1989, most significant, the greatest event was the fall of the Berlin Wall. The most significant event to world history uh, may have been what happened in Tiananmen You're Square. You're a central banker. We've we got so much to cover, Paul. I apologize if I keep on jumping in. Lots of, lots of press about... You know, it's the old argument, America sneezes, the rest of the world gets pneumonia or maybe COVID now. Um, the US dollar supremacy uh, from El Pais to the New York Times, the dollar strong, which is great for American tourists in Europe, but it's bad for the rest of the world. As a man who spent his life in and out of power of, of central banks, how is American economic power contributing to global discord? To what extent uh, do Americans well. need to be more sensitive to the power and destructive, particularly the destructive power of the dollar? The most, the most um, basic connection is that the, the role of the dollar um, underpins and in turn is held by America's security role. The, the, the role of the dollar makes the United States resilient in the face of really bad things going on. If I think about 19, 2008, when the world's banks, or certainly the Western world's banks were collapsing, um, the, there was a rush of funds into US treasury bills. This is the great privilege, the most important privilege in a way of, of being the, the world's dominant currency issuer. So in, in part, I think that the unknown headquarters of, of American hegemony is is the Federal Reserve building, and it, I think take the, the United States should take no risks with inflation and take no risks. Are you a are you a great critic of the Federal Reserve? We've done a number of shows on their monetary policy. Many people believe, particularly progressives, that um, the cause of today's inflationary economy is Federal Reserve policy after 2009-10. Would you agree on that one? I think I think that they continued with quantitative easing and their so-called forward guidance for too long. I, I actually think they most of the quantitative easing, the purchasing of government bonds that they did in 2020-2021, I think they should not have done. They should have allowed the federal government, which was doing taking extraordinary steps to protect households and 
and businesses from the pandemic. They should have allowed the federal government to fund itself in the market. We didn't need fiscal stimulus or fiscal support and monetary stimulus at the same time. And then in 2021, I'm amongst those who think that the Federal Reserve was was slow to recognize the significance of the um, of the fiscal stimulus from the Biden administration. Your last book was called uh, Unelected Power, the Quest for Legitimacy in Central Banking and the Regulatory State. I assume that the Federal Reserve, as well as I guess the Bank of England, are exhibits A and B for unelected power. Yes, and with the European Central Bank. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so we need to keep them to, I believe in central bank independence, but it should be narrow. Price stability, banking sector stability, I don't think they should be involved in the pursuit of social justice. I don't think that they should be in the lead on climate change. And that is not well, at all- I'm going to talk about climate change because that, that, that's something that Castle Roy uh, didn't have to grapple with. We've done many shows on the role of international organizations in fixing the climate, one with David Victor and Charles Sable, for example, who are actually both internationalists and both reasonably optimistic. What's your take on global discord and the role of international organizations when it comes to climate, which of course escape, you know, pollution and global warming escapes traditional nation state boundaries? No, exactly. I mean, it's, this, is, this may be the great tragedy. Um, it needs a joined up international effort, but it's going to be harder to get one um, given the geopolitical contest between Washington and, and Beijing. I mean, a, a frivolous way of, of putting it is if you're, if you're in Beijing deciding how much um, to spend, if you like, to, to, to reduce um, pollution in the Chinese economy and therefore in the world, one way of costing that is in terms of aircraft carriers. Uh, China starts off with far fewer aircraft carriers than the United States. They no doubt want more. Anything that costs public resources is deflecting public resources away from rearmament. And so I think that the geopolitical contest, while not destined for conflict, will make cooperation on various existential cha um, challenges much harder. But just, Andrew, if I may, to finish what I was saying, when I say central banks shouldn't be taking the lead on that, it's obvious I think it doesn't matter. I think it matters enormously. I just think we need to leave central banks with the job that they've been given, and then they would, you know, putting it bluntly, they would screw up a bit less. Paul, we've been talking for almost 35 minutes about values and power in a fractured world order. We haven't mentioned the United Nations. Is that significant? Do you think that they're irrelevant in this bipolar US-China world? Curiously, I think that, um, I think it's quite a significant physical place where people can meet. It, it's, I think we should think of it not very ambitiously in terms of there are all these norms that somehow the United Nations can enforce, but that actually it provides an opportunity um, for for rivals to meet sometimes via intermediaries, which is, you know, that's easier today than it was during Castlereagh's period when he had to travel hundreds, if not thousands of, of miles. I think the United Nations distracts itself um, or overstretches itself on many fronts, but I think that kind of core mission of bringing people together 
And we've seen that to some extent with the votes um, on the war in Eastern Europe in that um, this is slightly different from a place to meet, but people have had to reveal where they stand. That's been a very good um, thing. The, the people that have voted uh, with Russia have announced where they stand in the world. Others have, have abstained. Um, others have abstained in ways that have given speeches which were essentially pro-Russian, and others have abstained in ways that are, are kind of more, are more neutral. And I think all of that actually is, even though it's aggravating occasionally, is actually quite useful for policymakers because governments are forced to signal abroad, internationally, and to their own citizens, their own subjects in some cases, where they stand on these issues. I think that's a good thing. You've danced around Putin and the rise of what people uh, hysterically call populism. Do you think he's a relevant player or just a man cornered who will eventually turn into a bit of a footnote for the 21st century? I think it's quite significant in the following sense. So when I was writing the book, I had thought, and there's a sentence more or less to this effect, I, I had thought that Putin or Putin's successors would make their move in Eastern Europe at much the same time as um, Beijing makes its move against Taiwan, if it does so. In other words, I thought what would happen would some loose alliance would try and stretch the West in, in very different geographies. And I think one of the two, perhaps three significant things from the war is one, that move, that move has been made. It can't now be made um, in quite such a devastating way. Secondly, it has signaled um, to the Chinese leadership that Putin is a slightly erratic um, operator. And thirdly, it has, it has brought the, the North Atlantic Alliance back together in a purposeful way. When many people um, thought that it was finished, you mentioned Kenneth Waltz and some of the so-called realists. Um, I would badge myself as a realist. They all wanted to abolish. They both wanted to abolish um, NATO. They thought it should be um, abolished. And, and they thought it would be abolished. And actually, this was... This was guilty of one of the sins of any decent form of realism, which is wishful thinking. The point about the North Atlantic Alliance is the world is a dangerous place and you need allies in the world and friends. And the North Atlantic Alliance was one way of preserving um, those connections. And thank God it, it was. Thank goodness the so-called structural realists were, were ignored. So let's end with... A little bit of advice from you to both Chinese, to Xi Jinping and to Joe Biden in terms of managing this glowing global discord between the United States and China. What can each power do realistically? You're a realist. So I think, I think I, what I will give you is something that they should each give great weight to. The United States and capitals in Europe should give weight to the prospect that China does continue to grow at a very rapid rate and becomes bigger than the, um, um, the United States economy, considerably bigger even. That's a world in which um, we, must, uh, we must maintain our alliances and friendships with states like India, Indonesia, um, and other rising powers. Um, and 
not make ourselves over dependent upon China in crucial things without alienating them too much. China, meanwhile, um, should weigh the possibility of what international relations do they want if they don't grow rapidly and the United States does remain um, by far the most successful economy in the, in the world. I mean, neither, in other words, neither should indulge in, in wishful thinking. So Washington, the wishful thinking that the Chinese economy collapses and for China, the wishful thinking that they become the undisputed economic leader of the, of the world. Well, that's all very, very interesting stuff. And um, I strongly suggest people read uh, Paul Tucker's new book, Global Discord, Values and Power in a Fractured World Order. Deals with Kant and Grotius, Hume, uh, Williams, uh, many, many other themes to make sense of our world. Congratulations, uh, Paul, on the new book. Uh, what else uh, would you uh, advise our readers and listeners to, to read? To make ah. sense of our discordant world. To make sense of our discordant um, world. I can give you two books that I have drawn a great deal from, but they're quite remote from the 21st century. Two books are important. One, one is Judith Herron's recent book on Ravenna, which was the capital of the late Roman Empire. I think that's one of the finest books written in, in recent years by, by anybody. Mm. Um, and then a novel. There's a trilogy about Hungary at the turn of the 20th century by a man called Banfi. And I think this is of contemporary relevance because it, it kind of documents in fictional form what it is for an elite to lose their way, to become overly focused on their own narrow interests and including at provincial level, but also the legislation going through in Budapest without watching the wider scene. And I think the second volume of that trilogy is very instructive. It's also an absolutely marvelous 20th century novel. The Habsburgs are very good at that. Robert Musel as well, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely.